Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Publishing Director at Word on Fire. Today we're going to be discussing the fading of forgiveness, why the practice of forgiveness has seemed to have dwindled in recent years, also the connection between forgiveness and God, and specifically Christianity. Before we get there though, Bishop Barron, welcome. It's good to see you. Hey Brandon, always a joy to see you. How are the kids doing in Orlando? Yeah, we're doing pretty well. We're back in the school year now. We're, you know, homeschooling, oh, yeah. so we kind of start a little bit before the public schools kids get back, but uh, lots of activity in the Vought household. A couple yeah, of uh, exciting updates here from Word on Fire. One of them is today. So uh, today, which is Monday, August 9th, we're beginning our Word on Fire Institute Faith and Science Summit. It's a free online summit. You can sign up at wordonfire.institute slash science. And we have all sorts of wonderful presentations from experts in the fields of faith, theology, and science. Um, some of the topics being discussed include artificial intelligence, extraterrestrial life, free will, the Big Bang, evolution, and more. So maybe you have questions probing these issues. Maybe you have college age or high school age students or children who have questions about these issues. If so, go to the website wordonfire.institute slash science and sign up for free for this Word on Fire Institute Faith and Science Summit. A second update, Bishop, and I want to ask you about this. You recently had a very intriguing guest come visit your residence and the production studio there in Santa Barbara. He was Archbishop Bashar Warda. Archbishop Warda is the Chaldean Catholic Archbishop of Erbil, which is in Iraq. Mm -hmm. So he's one of the few bishops, Catholic bishops in Iraq. I know him through uh, the Chesterton circles. He's starting up a Chesterton Academy High School in Iraq, which we're especially proud of. But uh, tell us about his visit and some of the things he shared about the church in Iraq. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. I first met him in um, Krakow 2016 for World Youth Day. He had given a talk in the, in the Mercy Center, which is a big arena, and then I was coming up, I think, afterwards. So he came backstage and we met. And he, he talked that day about the persecuted church in Iraq. And we spent some time in my house talking about exactly that and how he, during the worst of the ISIS period, when Christians were being chased out of their homes and their cities, they came in many cases north. He's in that kind of Kurdistan area of Iraq. And he put them up in churches and the cathedrals and people sleeping in pews and in sacristies. And, and then he arranged for housing, more permanent housing. He also built a Catholic university in Erbil. So he's an impressive guy. He comes to this country periodically to tell the story and I think, you know, to raise funds and to, and to get support for his persecuted church. Because as you know, Brandon, the 20th century was the worst century on record for Christian martyrs. No question about that. And things have not gotten a lot better, frankly, in the 21st century. Uh, as Christians continue to be by far the most persecuted religious group around the world. We're being persecuted here, but in a somewhat less lethal way. You know, and we might talk about that today. But his church is being persecuted very aggressively. So God bless him. And um, we had a wonderful visit. He came here to the studio where I'm recording these words. He wanted to see it. He's an avid Word on Fire follower. And I was delighted to hear that there were a lot of young people, he said, in Iraq who follow Word on Fire. They know about you. They know this show. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm surprised. There are so many who are you know, English speakers. So anyway, that was a, it was a marvelous visit. It's so a big shout out to all of our listeners in Iraq. We're, we're just yeah. delighted to hear that. I, I can hardly think of any better news. Um, tell me if, I, if I'm not mistaken, he gave you a, a very significant gift, didn't he? 
He did. It was wonderful. Uh, when the Pope went to Iraq just recently, not that many months ago, he gave to Archbishop Warda a little medal. And it has a, it's a medal with an engraving of uh, Abraham, who came from Ur of the Chaldees, right? So kind of from that part of the world, uh, or through at least his part of the world. Uh, and so he gave that to me. He gave in turn to me as just a sign of, of respect and gratitude for the work that we do. So I've got that in a very honored place in my house uh, in Santa Barbara. Marvelous. Yeah. Well, again, today we're going to be discussing the topic of forgiveness. And for the framework of this dialogue, Bishop, I'd like to use a recent article published by Tim Keller. Lots mm -hmm. of listeners to this podcast will be familiar with Tim Keller. He's a popular Protestant pastor in the New York area. I think he has a big, huge church um, in New York City, Man Manhattan, if in I'm not Manhattan, mistaken. In Manhattan, I think, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but he wrote this very long, very insightful article titled The Fading of Forgiveness, Tracing the Disappearance of the Thing We Need Most. I'll link to the article in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to read it, but I thought we'd walk through the article and, and let you interject and add your thoughts as we go mm -hmm. along. So Keller begins the article by noting a major shift from the civil rights movements of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela, which were marked by the ethics of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Those were core pillars of those civil rights movements. He compares that to today's activism, which seems not to value the virtue of forgiveness as much. In fact, in the article, he quotes a young activist named Stacy Patton, who laments how many black Christians today believed that displays of morality rooted in forgiveness, they thought would force white America to leave behind its racist assumptions. But, Stacy argued, our constant forgiveness only perpetuates the cycles of attacks and abuse. Likewise, Keller points to the Me Too movement and the abuses of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he quotes a New York Times article titled, Should We Forgive Men Who Assaulted Us? And the clear answer in that article was no, we shouldn't forgive them. Um, so he concludes, Today, after the renewal of the race, racial justice movement in the wake of George Floyd's death, the emphasis on guilt and justice is even more on the rise, while the con concept of forgiveness seems, especially to the younger generation, increasingly problematic. So let's start there. D does that resonate with what you've seen, Bishop? Have you noticed a rising uh, skepticism about the idea of forgiveness? Yes, and I, I resonated very much when I read the article. I think he's put his finger on something of tremendous importance. You know, look, on the one hand, is there a very legitimate concern we should always have for justice? And the answer to that clearly is yes. Justice is one of God's great attributes. He's the just one. And so when someone's been offended, someone's been oppressed, someone's been hurt, when a great injustice has been done, it's appropriate that we respond with a concern for justice. So whether it's people suffering from racial oppression, whether it's the Me Too movement, uh, whether it's, it's the George Floyd situation and policing, et cetera, et cetera, is there something that wells up legitimately from our hearts that says this must stop and we must find justice? Yes. And you mentioned people like King and Mandela, I'd say Desmond Tutu as well, and many others who are formed in the Christian tradition and know very well that the call to justice is basic to what we're about. So we're not denying that. And that's the legitimate value behind much of what we hear today. But what Cal is putting his finger on, I think, very importantly is, if that's all we have, 
all we stress is justice, that very rapidly society becomes very brittle and very cold, and in fact, in the end, very violent. Because you go right back to the lex talionis, right? You go back to the, the uh, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth attitude. I've been offended. So in my call for justice, I, I need you to pay a price now in return. Legitimate? Yes, yes. You know, of course, we're not denying justice. But the danger is if we just stay within that matrix, we have the eye for an eye making the whole world blind, as Gandhi said. We have fighting fire with fire that eventually sets the whole world on fire. That forgiveness adds a dimension to it. Again, mind you, not denying justice. Forgiveness is not opposed to justice. It's a step beyond it. It encircles it, if you want. But if you bracket uh, forgiveness, you see a lot of the brittleness and hard-edged coldness and, frankly, violence that we see in our society today. And that is a Christian thing. Now, we can talk more about that. There is something really distinctively Christian about this idea of forgiveness. And so when it fades away, something very serious has been lost in our culture. Keller goes on to look at a couple of key reasons why there's been this fading of forgiveness, as he calls it. But I wanted to get your thoughts on, on one of them. It's, it's my observation that I think a lot of people suspect that to the extent we promote forgiveness is the extent to which we affirm the injustice that needs mm -hmm. forgiving. So it's like, if I forgive someone who's hurt me, then I'm in some way implicitly affirming that what he did wasn't that bad, or it's you know not that big of a deal. Do you see that among people that their hesitancy to forgive is because they think if I forgive, I'm affirming or endorsing the bad act? Yeah, I think so. And again, it, it hinges upon that idea of um, forgiveness going beyond and yet including justice. If it's something other than justice, then we have a problem. In fact, that's not real forgiveness, as we'll see. That's a kind of sentimentalization of forgiveness. And that, indeed, is repugnant to justice, which makes it very problematic. If it's just a sort of, you know, a Pollyannish, oh, I'll just smile in the face of deep oppression, and oh, let's just move on, let's get over it. Well, that's not real forgiveness, as we'll see. That's a sentimentality that in, indeed is opposed to justice, and we should be against that. So look at someone like King again, who's always been a great hero of mine. Uh, talk about someone that came to terms with injustice, who, who was not the least bit hesitant in calling out injustice calling for a more just society. I mean, there's no question that King was involved in that, but, but it wasn't just that with him. But it was conditioned by, it was surrounded by the Christian idea of the forgiveness of our enemies, indeed the love of our enemies. Now, you know, wasn't it in fact um, uh, Chesterton, or no, no, I'm thinking of, um, of Stanley Hauerwas, you know, that, that um, if we're called to love our enemies, it means we gotta have some. <laughs> And I think the point there is that's not a sentimentalization like, oh, I don't have any enemies. Oh, I, I love everyone. Everyone's wonderful. No, if, if you're called to love your enemies, it's because you know you've got some. In other words, there are people that do real injustice. They really are enemies to you. But now I'm called upon not just to reestablish justice, but to love my enemy. And that's another dimension. And Keller, again, is saying, I think, when that's lost, something vital to our whole society is lost. 
I think the Chesterton line you had in mind, he says, yeah, the, Bible, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like Chesterton, right? Okay, let's keep going. Again, Keller puts his finger on what he sees as two major reasons why forgiveness has been fading. Number one is what he describes as our therapeutic culture. He says, our culture has taken a strongly inward turn. And I'm going to quote him here a couple sentences. He says, while all other cultures have stressed the importance of community and the need to forge a personal identity that negotiates and aligns with the common good, Modernity stresses looking inward to forge one's own identity based on our desires and then moving outward to demand that society honor our individual identity and interests. He then quotes a theologian who says that if all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little mm -hmm. importance. What's the link that you see between forgiveness and community? Yeah, it's a super important observation he's making there, I think. Uh, again, let's stress first the, the value behind the position that, that we're going to be eventually uh, distancing ourselves from. The value is there is something to coming to one's own sense of freedom, integrity, worth, and value. There is. There's something, of course, good about that. You know, take a, a little kid. You're not going to say to a toddler or like an early adolescent, okay, just forgive anyone that offends you, give yourself away, be a person of radical love. Well, see, in a way, the, the kid isn't capable of that yet because the kid has to come to some sense of, of appropriation. They, they know what's their own. They, they know who they are. That's okay that we go through a period of, of um, that kind of appropriation. Because nemo dot quad non habit, right? You can't give what you don't have. So only when you have a sense of self, a legitimate one, your own desires, your own wants, and so on, that you can actually give it away as a gift. So that's the value behind, you know, self-assertion and knowing who I am. And let's say someone has grown up in a, in a nonstop oppressive context. So psychological oppression, like someone coming of age in a family of deep dysfunction and physical abuse or sexual abuse or whatever it is. And well, that young kid needs to be affirmed. You know, you don't just say to someone who's been under constant oppression, oh, forget about your own desires, just give yourself away in love. Well, they don't have th that integral self perhaps to give away. And so I get it. Sure, there's a value to that. Again, I think though what Keller puts his finger on is when we hyper-valorize or we valorize that in a one-sided way, then something goes wrong. Stay with this, Brandon. I think we've talked before about um, Richard Rohr and his thing on the initiation rituals of primal peoples, right? And, and Rohr, I've always appreciated this, would say the, the end result of these rites of initiation, where you take a young person out of his domestic setting, you know, where his needs were met and his desires were articulated and people took care of him. Okay, appropriate for, for that stage of life. But then they take him out of that context and they challenge him. They, they scarify him in some way. They put him out into nature to survive. They bring him into a wider horizon even of spiritual reality. The point is, okay, now that you kind of have a sense of yourself, let me draw you into worlds that go way beyond 
your desires and your self and your affirmation. And I, I know I'll forget at least one of these, but Rohr would say the, the principles behind these initiation rituals. Life is hard. There's the first one. That's why they scarify you often. Well, how many people today demand to live in safe space all the time? Well, I'm sorry, life is not a safe space. It is for a little kid, appropriately. You try to keep a little kid as safe as possible, protect him, because he's very vulnerable. But part of coming of age is to realize the world is not a safe space at all. I think a second one is um, uh, you're going to die. So this keen sense of, look, I, I, I'm not the center of the universe. In fact, my, my life's going to come to an end. A third one, you're not that important. <laughs> is, is a purpose of the initiation ritual. And then the, the last one I can think of is the, the one that I often cite. Your life is not about you. Now, my point here, Brandon, I hope I'm not rambling too much, is, is a sense of protection, of safety, of coming to self-possession, all of that is fine and appropriate. But at a certain stage of life, you have to now break free of that and be drawn into, I'll state it positively now, drawn into a world of objective value that goes way beyond your little private concerns. That's what we want. And see, I agree with Rohr who said, we live in a society filled with uninitiated people. Part of the role of religion has always been to initiate people, to draw them into these higher worlds. I think that's a big part of our problem here. So that was the first reason that Keller cites for this fading of forgiveness, our therapeutic culture and its inward turn. If forgiveness mm -hmm. and reconciliation are primarily a communal act, then the more we move away from community to the individual, the more forgiveness fades. The second thing he puts his finger on, though, is what he describes as religion without grace. Religion without grace. He comes at it from a couple different angles. Here's the first one. He says that what's become known as cancel culture tends to atrophy forgiveness. Um, he affirms that we have this shame and, and honor culture of victimhood, which some have identified as a new secular religion. And I'm going to read you what he says about it. It's a couple paragraphs, but I think worth citing. And then again, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts. Keller says, in this new culture, companies, institutions, and governing agencies are now tasked not with treating all individuals equally, but with the moral obligation to defend victims, those who have been oppressed by the powerful. This provides a second ring of honor in the emerging culture. While the highest honor goes to the victims themselves, it secondarily comes to the defenders of victims. This new honor society, also called cancel culture, ends up valuing fragility over strength, creating a society of constant good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as victims or as defenders of the victim. All of that atrophies our ability to lovingly overlook slights. But most of all, it sweeps away the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is seen now as radically unjust and impractical as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. How's that sound to you? Yeah, there's a lot there. Of course, we could, we could go on for a month about those implications. Um, the whole victimhood idea. Let's start again the way I've been doing it. What's valuable? What's good in this? 
there are real victims. So we shouldn't be blind to that. Go up and down human history. It's something like, as Father Steve always says, a bluebeard's closet. I mean, you open up the closet of history and you're going to find skeletons and skulls. And, you know, history is this terrible uh, slaughter bench, as Hegel put it. Uh, so massive injustice and so on. Are there real victims? Yes, yes. And it's important for us to acknowledge that and realize it. So that, that's the, the positive thing. We don't want to sweep all that into the Bluebeard's closet. We don't want to just pretend, oh, it never happened and everything's fine. The problem now is the exaggeration, as he says. We're actually now becoming victim is the, is the honor in our society, that I have to show that I'm a victim. And the more I can show that, the more honor I get. And then honor is coupled, as you suggest there, with shame. And so for me to be honored, someone else has to be shamed. And, and watch, by the way, how Jesus undermines that game. That's a, a very interesting dynamic in the New Testament is to overcome an honor-shame society. But we are caught in it big time. That for me to be honored, someone else has to be shamed. So what you get there is the microaggression and cancel culture. So the microaggressions... Well, I'm being offended all the time. So not just, you know, I was a victim of the Holocaust or I was a victim of, of American chattel slavery. But now I'm a victim because you looked at me cross-eyed or because you said a little word that I, was, I choose to be offended by or you did something that you never intended. No one else would notice, but I noticed it. Now we're in a very negative, very problematic space. But what I'm trying to do is constantly build up the treasury of honor, and I'm honored by being victimized. But the concomitant, again, which is really dangerous, is in each one of those, someone else has to be shamed. Now, what you have, therefore, is an antagonistic society. You have an antagonistic social theory. It's always going to be, it has to be, us against them. I always think of, you know, there are Marxist roots to a lot of this stuff, and Marx famously opined that, you know, someone becomes rich only at the expense of someone who's becoming poor. That's basically ingredient in Marxist uh, uh, economic analysis. We can't go into all those details, but you know, a non-Marxist approach would say, no, that's not true, that someone becomes wealthy at the expense necessarily of somebody else. But see, that's a kind of honor-shame situation. Now, I get the honor of victimhood only when I shame you. Now, visit social media any day of the week if you doubt what I'm saying, and you'll see this constantly going on, accumulating, accumulating, accumulating the honor of victimization and blaming, blaming, blaming others. Ay, 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 what a space to be in. And again, I'm not denying there really are victims. We're not saying that's not true. But when we move into this space that we're in today, uh, why is everyone so uneasy and so anxious all the time because we're in this horrific war of all, all against all. It's like a Hobbesian social space that we're in. And I think what Keller is seeing is all this language of common good, of a shared humanity, of a common purpose, a social purpose that we can work together. And I would say, again, going back to von Hildebrand and objective value, when together we fall in love with objective values, epistemic, moral, and, and uh, aesthetic, that's what brings us together. Together we're devoted to these great values. 
The problem is all that gets bracketed. Oh, that's just relativized, or or that's the way powerful people maintain themselves in power, right? How how we sort of demythologize, we deconstruct any claim to objective value. God help us, that's where we are though. And so we have this Hobbesian honor, shame, war of all against all. That's maybe the main reason that I'm so uneasy with the social space that's that's emerged. And may I say, even as we're using social media, which I love, I use it, I believe in it, but God help us, social media has become a place where all of this is acted out, you know, massively. Because we can be in each other's presence to do all this honoring and shaming 24 hours a day, seven days a week, <laughs> right? Now, again, and we'll say more about this, the, the breakdown of religion, Brandon, is not an abstract or minor problem. You and I have been tracing this for a long time. The disaffiliation from the churches, the lack of belief in God, the radical secularization. I tell you, something moves into the space of ultimacy. When, when you get rid of God, something moves into it. And I, I fear, I think along with Keller, that a lot of this business, this honor-shame business, has moved into the space of ultimacy. This one-sided obsession with justice and, and the loss of things like forgiveness, common humanity, love of enemies, a common, a shared social purpose, when all that gets bracketed, you know, God help us. I mentioned we've been walking through this article by Tim Keller, the prominent Protestant pastor. It's titled, The Fading of Forgiveness. And we've walked through most of the first half, which is diagnostic. It describes why forgiveness has faded in our culture. In the next episode of the Word on Fire show, we'll tackle the second half, which offers the practical remedy. How do we become better at forgiving people? And specifically as Christians, what's our unique understanding of forgiveness? Uh, but before we wrap up today, Bishop, I wanted to quote one last part of that first diagnostic sure. half. Keller quotes from the great literary scholar Alan Jacobs. I know you've read uh, one or two books by Jacobs. Um, I thought this was a, a great pithy diagnosis of this problem, which Jacobs describes as an addiction to vindictiveness, an addiction mm -hmm. to vindictiveness. Here's how he says it. When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but it has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. Mm -hmm. The great moral crisis of our time, he says, is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serve as crack for moralists. Yeah, There's right. no high, <laughs> like the high you get from punishing yep. malefactors. But, he says, like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The yep. mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. What do you think yeah. of that? Absolutely right at every point, it seems to me. And that's why, I go back to microaggressions again. How come we have to keep inventing microaggressions for this very reason? Uh, we have to keep generating the energy behind victimization and shaming. Go back to, to St. Paul, who very early on saw the danger of the law, even as he reverenced the law as a, as a pious Jew, he saw the danger of it. Namely, I will use the law now to puff up my own ego and to attack you. 
And, you know, we religious people, we know all about this. It, it's, it's up and down the centuries. I, the more I know of the moral law and, and the more detail I can summon, the more I can, I can aggrandize myself. Hey, I, I follow this, 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 this. Look at me. I follow all these laws. And, and you don't follow this one. You don't follow that one. And what's the matter with you? And Paul saw that. That's the danger of the law. Even as we love the law, it's beautiful, but that's the danger, the shadow side of it. Well, see, again, in a similar way, Brandon, understanding that there are real victims, that we need to address them in justice, is that a good thing? Yes. As I've said now many times, that's a good thing. But watch how it bears a shadow side, which is just this. So uh, becoming a victim, oh, that's good for me. So I'll become a victim in this way and this way and this way and that way. And when I run out of those, I'll invent microaggressions that make me more and more and more and more of a victim. And the more I do that concomitantly, I can blame you and you and you and you and you and you. And I, I love that language of like, it's like crack. It's like a, something I get addicted to. I need to keep generating this all the time. And diminishing returns, as with any addiction. You know, I get a thrill from it. Go on social media again, you'll see it in spades, right? Is people get a thrill, obviously, from claiming a victim status and blaming their opponents. But then it wears off. Okay, go to another site. Okay, let's find something else that we can be outraged about. Let's find someone else we can blame. Um, and there's no outlet for this. And the outlet is our theme, forgiveness working towards something like real reconciliation so that we're not simply in this war perpetually of all against all. And I do fear that's the space we're moving into. And, and it's made possible in many ways by the diminishing of religion. As religion fades away, this sort of thing is going to happen. So I, I quite agree with that. Well, again, uh, this was just the first half of Tim Keller's article. Next time Bishop and I are together, we will discuss the second half, which has a much more positive light to it because it focuses on how to fix this issue, how to bring forgiveness back to the foreground, and as Christians, how to follow Jesus's teachings on forgiveness. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today we have one from Robert in Ohio. He's asking a very metaphysically high-level question about God, creation, and the universe. Here is Robert's question. Hey, Bishop Barron. My name is Robert, and I'm from Ohio. My question is, how did God create the universe if not from potentiality? Did God always have the idea to create the universe before time existed. My Orthodox friend and I debate this and many other topics and would like to hear what you have to say. Thanks. Yeah, as Brandon says, that's a very searching question and we need a whole uh, university course to really get to the bottom of it. Um, first of all, potential. Keep in mind the ambiguity in the Latin potentia. It can mean power and God has nothing but that. He's all-powerful. But potentia can also mean this possibility, which is unactualized. And there, God has none of it. So we say God is actus purus. He's pure act. There's no potentiality. If there were, God would be a conditioned being to some degree susceptible to being caused. And so that can't be the case. Having said that, we have to make a further distinction between what is necessary in God, so that God is 
that God has certain attributes that's necessary. We can't say, well, God will choose not to be omniscient. God will choose not to be all-powerful. No, no, that belongs to his nature. In a similar way, for example, that the Son proceeds from the Father necessarily. Yeah, the Father didn't choose to give rise to the Son. There's an, there is an automatic quality to that procession. But then we distinguish between that and those things that God has indeed chosen to do. So God didn't have to create. It doesn't belong to his essence. God would be utterly God even without creation. Another way to put it is, is the world adds nothing to God's greatness. So there are certain things that God does that are done freely, we say. But it wouldn't involve potentiality in the sense of an unrealized uh, possibility. So I would just make those set that set of distinctions, and we'd have to do a whole university course to fill in all the details. Well, thanks for the great question, Robert. And to all of our listeners, I want to give you one more reminder about the Word on Fire Institute Faith and Science Summit. It starts today, Monday, August 9th. It lasts through August 12th throughout this week. It features a series of presentations, each of them with a Word on Fire Institute fellow joining a fascinating guest from one of a variety of scientific disciplines discussing this intersection of faith and science. You'll hear about topics including artificial intelligence, extraterrestrial life, free will, the Big Bang, evolution, and more. We've got priests, we've got physicists, we've got astronomers, we've got the whole gamut of experts in all these fields, and it's all free. So join us, sign up at wordonfire.institute slash science. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.